Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. Seabury Securities, global reach, global scale. seaburysecurities.com. And Aerodata, the leading edge in flight performance data. Visit aerodata.co. Aerodata is a Garmin company. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Hello, listeners. I'm Ben Baldanza, and welcome to Airlines Confidential. And I'm Chris Chimes. Good to have you with us. Hey, Ben, we've got an interesting conversation with Jay Thornson with IdeaWorks coming up. Jay has had an impressive career in the industry and is a leading authority on frequent flyer programs and ancillary revenue. But first, we're going to get straight to some news. And we're going to start with some sad news, the death of Norm Mineta. Secretary Mineta never worked at an airline, but he had a profound impact on the business during his 40-plus year career in public service. As a congressman, the chairman of the House Transportation Committee, the Secretary of Commerce for President Bill Clinton, and then the Secretary of Transportation under George W. Bush, he was leading the DOT during 9-11 and made the critical call to immediately ground all U.S. airline operations and then was later instrumental in the creation of the TSA and creating a professional transportation security infrastructure. And from a personal standpoint, one of the nicest, most respectful and thoughtful public servants we could ask for. I first met him in 1982 when I started my career in Capitol Hill, and he and his team on the Transportation Committee were always outstanding to work with. He had a lot of fans in the aviation business. Count me as one of them. Ben, I don't know if you ever had any interaction with him. Well, count me as another fan. I only met Secretary Mineta once, but I was blown away with what you said, just how incredibly humble he was, how interested he seemed in the problems we were talking to him about, and sort of really in the moment. It wasn't like he was thinking about other things and going to do other things. He really wanted to understand our position and why we were talking to him and think if there were ways he could help. I walked away from that meeting thinking, wow, I wish all of our public servants were like him. Yeah, he was, uh, you know, kind of epitomized by partisanship and working collegially across all points of view. And like you said, Ben, you know, he had read the memo. He had read the briefing memo and was engaged and always asked really thoughtful questions and pushed his staff and his team to come to the best solutions for all the parties. And Ben, let's stay on the topic of Washington, D.C., kind of, sort of. Uh, your reaction to the news about Boeing moving its corporate headquarters to the D.C. suburb of Northern Virginia, right up the street from where you are sitting right now. Yes, I was surprised at this. I didn't realize that Boeing was thinking about moving. Our listeners probably remember that a little while ago, Boeing moved its formal headquarters from Seattle to Chicago, and now they're moving that office to Arlington, Virginia. You know, it seems kind of obvious to me that it has to be related to Boeing's large defense contractor business. They make planes for the military, not just commercial airplanes. And they do lots of things, actually, for the military, not just planes. And Airbus has their North American headquarters in this area near Dulles Airport, actually. So maybe they felt that to better compete in that space, they needed more gravitas in this area. They have a building here that says Boeing on it. So I know they have some people here, but to move their formal headquarters here, I think sends a message of this part of our business is important, maybe not more important than the commercial airplane business, but maybe a piece they feel that they're maybe we're losing some traction to Airbus since they're based here or others. So Overall, as a Northern Virginia resident, I'm very happy because it says great things about the economy, Amazon coming here, Boeing coming here. It's just real positive to diversify the economy here a little bit away from just all government and lawyers too. Yeah, I think you're right. It's probably 90% about the defense industry and that part of the business. Um, most of their major competitors are headquartered or have very, very large presence in the greater D.C. area. 
I just kind of have to wonder, and I think kind of the undercurrent of this decision is kind of like with everything else on the commercial side of the business, they still are dealing with, is this what the board and the senior management was focused on was where to move an office. So I think, I think that is the issue that is drawing the most questions is, you know, why now you got to resolve the 737 max issues still the little bit of the overhang and certainly the uh, the dreamliner issues and just writing the ship with regard to the commercial business but they must think that this move helps them well you know chris also part of the 73 max issue i mean a lot of issues came out of those crashes right and one of them was just the relationship of the FAA to manufacturers and how planes get approved to fly, how they get their certification. And so maybe a secondary reason that they wanted senior members of the Boeing team to be here was to over time build better relationships with the FAA and leaders there so that there could be maybe more transparency in those kind of things. The FAA had looked bad in the 737 MAX crashes. Boeing looked bad in terms of the way maybe they took advantage of that. If you want to take that view, there are some people who have. And and so maybe they believe that they need to write that relationship ship as well. And so why not have all our senior people there too? Yeah, I'm not suggesting the move is the wrong one. I just think in the follow-up steps that the company takes, they need to demonstrate why this is the right thing to do at this time. Being closer to DC and where a lot of the decisions that are being made that affect their company, um, that, that all makes perfect sense. Let's see how this plays out. Well, listeners, last week we mentioned that we have some new sponsors in the hopper, and we're pleased to introduce one of them this week. If you're in the air transport business, you know the Aerodata name, and if you don't know them, then you need to know their name. For three decades, Aerodata has helped airlines get more from their operations with aircraft performance, weight and balance, and load planning tools, and more. Visit aerodata.co, not .com, .co, to learn more and see how the Aerodata team can make a difference for your air carrier operations. Let me second that welcome to Aerodata. Great to have them on board. This week's show is also brought to you by Pratt & Whitney, a world leader in aircraft engines, helicopter engines, and auxiliary power units. To help the industry achieve net zero transport carbon emissions by 2050, Pratt & Whitney is powering more sustainable aviation through smarter technology, cleaner fuels, and greener business. Learn more at prattwhitney.com slash sustainability. Ben, let's stay inside the D.C. Beltway for one more news item. At a Senate hearing last week, DOT Secretary Buttigieg acknowledged the pilot shortage facing the industry and the impact on air service. Not sure I'm loving his proposal for $5 million in aviation workforce job development grants as a way to even make an impact, but he floated that with the Senate committee he was testifying before. A Raymond James analyst estimates there's a need for U.S. airlines to hire 13,000 new pilots per year for the next several years, but the current training and certification process only produces somewhere between five to 7,000 per year. I'm not not really understanding how this small $5 million grant program is going to make a dent. You know, I agree with you. I think it's great that the secretary actually said something about airlines. I haven't heard him say much about anything about airlines <laughs> since he's been the secretary. So I'm glad he knows the airlines exist and are important. And I'm glad he recognizes that pilot availability is one of the looming issues for the airline industry. So I don't know how much went into that sort of $5 million workforce job grant or whether that was just a sort of, well, what can we say? We're getting up on stage sort of thing. Um, I'm not sure what role the government has in helping the industry train new pilots, except to continue to look at the requirements to become a pilot. 
you know, a number of years ago, Chris, the the number of hours needed to get hired by a regional moved from 250 hours up to 1500 hours. And that made it much more expensive for many people to become pilots, take a lot longer to do that. And that hasn't come with a demonstrable or even any sort of measurable increase in safety. And some argue it's actually been less safe because the pilot's well, by the time they get into a commercial airplane, haven't trained as much in the commercial air system. They've been flying banners or skydivers or things like that, <laughs> not you know using ATC and landing at LaGuardia or something. So there's clearly a role for the FAA to play in this around certification of pilots, training of pilots, making sure that it's economically feasible for young people if they want to be a pilot, that they can see a path to that financially. But a direct grant to say we're going to train more people doesn't seem necessarily the right thing to do. We've had people on this show, and there are others in the industry that are running academies and trying to do that. Maybe one way the the government can help is just help people fund their training to become a pilot. Yeah, we've got a couple questions after our interview with Jason Wardson about this topic, so we'll keep up the conversation. But I tend to agree with you, and like I kind of raised when I teed up the question, you know, it was a nice kind of gesture, but it's not going to solve the problem, and we need to get to the table with government and industry and labor to talk about training and safety and how to get more pilots in the pipeline. Airlines Confidential will be right back with our guest, Jay Sorensen. Airlines Confidential is brought to you in part by Seabury Securities, a Seabury Capital Group company, which is a specialty finance and investment banking firm boasting a 25-year track record of advising aviation clients around the world. Their award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge as well as an unmatched depth of relationships with decision makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at SeaburySecurities.com. We're very happy to welcome Jay Sorensen to the show. Jay and I have been friends for a long time. He's got a great background and Rather than me tell you about it, let's have him do it. So, Jay, we always start with our guests telling us about their background. So tell us about your aviation background and what you're doing today. Well, you know, I got the calculator out yesterday, and it's always a shame when you need a calculator to figure out how long you've been in the industry. I've been in the uh, airline industry for 38 years, and the first 12 of it was with a startup airline called Midwest Express, uh, which later became Midwest Airlines, which... Oddly enough, for those of you who might not know the company, uh, was an airline started by Kimberly Clark. Yes, the giant paper products and consumer uh, manufacturer. And then I left there in 96, and I have been consulting uh, as an IdealWorks company for the last 26 years. And we work with airlines all over the world on helping them improve revenue streams, particularly from ancillary revenue or uh, frequent flyer programs. So, Jay, let's uh, start this conversation by going back to your days at Midwest Express or Midwest Airlines. If airlines like that couldn't make it, what do you think of a new startup in the U.S. and their prospects right now? Well, I don't know that, you know, by the time that Midwest Express or Midwest Airlines ended up failing, it was actually acquired by Republic Airways and was weirdly combined with Frontier for a while. I think that that failure of an airline was a management uh, failure, not necessarily a, a, a condition in the industry. But in terms of startups today, I, I think it's a, I always think it's a wonderful time for an airline to start up. And I think in particular now, because we have so, we have had so much consolidation in, in the industry, that it always leaves gaps that aren't filled. Well, Jay... You publish a regular ancillary revenue update, which is fascinating to read, you know, in describing all the different ways airlines collect revenue other than the tickets and how that's changing around the world. Talk about this trend and where do you think it might end up or are we at the pinnacle of this now? Well, the yearbook of ancillary revenue has been published for more than 10 years. 
or I think it's about exactly 10 years. And it is a huge compilation of, you know, we review the financial disclosures of about 200 airlines, uh, scouring uh, annual reports, investor presentations, uh, quarterly transcripts for evidence of, of ancillary revenue disclosures. And we compile that into a probably a 120-page document uh, that attempts to assess uh, the state of ancillary revenue at airlines all over the world. And we typically get, we're able to find examples of about 80 different airlines uh, in that, through that research work. But in terms of, I mean, whenever we publish a chart that either shows ancillary revenue as a global amount or ancillary revenue as a percentage of total global airline revenues, it is a delightful chart to publish because it's forever up, upward, uh, obviously, except for uh, the, period, the period of the pandemic. But it is advancing every year. And I don't think that we are done here yet. I think that there is... Uh, much more to be done on many different levels for ancillary revenue. In particular, um, I think that the growth will come from the following. One, there's a vast number of airlines out there that really aren't doing anything with ancillary revenue yet. Uh, these are traditional airlines, perhaps state-owned, regional carriers uh, that are perhaps not impacted by low-cost carrier uh, competition. So they have yet to fully embrace ancillary revenue. Plus, we're going to have a greater distribution of ancillary revenue, especially through uh, the GDS side, uh, which really has been encumbered by technological restrictions in the past. And then third, just better retailing methods in terms of more sophistication and how a la carte products are presented to customers. And now, in more sophistication in terms of how they're priced, in terms of applying uh, uh, revenue management techniques. So I think that there's a lot of a lot of runway left here. What are the industries that uh, inspire you as far as who's doing the best on on tapping into this ancillary revenue? The other industries may not call it that, but where are you getting some inspiration with regard to how airlines can be better at it? You know. I think that the airline industry leads the world in this, and it's it's interesting. You know, the airline industry led the world in automation in terms of the ability to book product uh, online or through computer systems. The airline industry led the world in terms of revenue management, and I think here the airline industry is leading the world. And so there really are not very good examples of other industries where this is being done. Now, having said that, there's a tremendous amount for the industry to learn about retail practice. And that is where, you know, we could do much better uh, as, as a travel industry, especially as, as airlines. And so I look to, whenever there's, I, I'm a daily reader of the Wall Street Journal, and whenever there is a story about some type of new retail or service industry uh, innovation, I'm on it in terms of looking at reading that article and trying to figure out how those best practices or how, the, how that innovation can be applied to the airline industry. Well, Jay, you were part of a study that I joined you on that is predicted that as much as 40% of business traffic might not return. That's an enormous <clears throat> number, obviously. Why do you think this and why did that study come to that conclusion? Well, Ben, you'll remember that when we did the first study, a couple, uh, about a year and a half prior to that second one, you know, we had reached up as high as 36%. And uh, when we redid the study, we, we boosted that number to 40%. And I think that there are two factors, uh, two primary factors. Allow me to back up and provide some color on that study. What we did is we didn't look at business travel as a whole. We divided business travel into different categories. And so business travel, of course, is the salesperson traveling to someplace, winning over a new client and shaking hands and getting the contract signed and getting a big sale. I mean, that is the most, that is the most uh, popular uh, view of what business travel is. But there's a whole lot of activities beyond that that cover the spectrum of, of, of business travel. It could be uh, a bunch of company employees doing an offsite meeting someplace. It could be a technician going someplace 
to repair a piece of equipment or install a piece of equipment. And so there's a broad array of activities that fall under the category of business travel. And we looked at each of these different categories, and then we assessed individually how much of a threat technology, uh, especially online technology like Zoom, posed to those uh, sectors or to those categories. And when you take a, a, a segmented approach like that, you begin to understand that there are categories that are that are uh, in danger of, of replacement, or I guess in danger, but will be replaced. And so, one of the factors is going to be technology. In terms of the, we all learned how to use online meeting technology during the pandemic, and it probably advanced that adoption uh, by ten years. And so, it's no surprise that that's going to stick. When you add to that the disruption of the traditional office environment. You know, if you're going to travel to a city to meet with someone, A, they have to be willing to meet with you in terms of not having any concerns about pandemic protocols, but also that they're in the office. You know, I was joking with a friend a couple of days ago on the phone and I, and I said, you know, I would come to meet you, but where would we meet? And he said, well, we would meet at Starbucks. And he said, well, how, wh- why can't we meet in your home? And we both laughed at that because that's just not something that's done yet. It might be done in the future, but we're all choosing these independent sites like a Starbucks to conduct commerce in. So I think that there's an impediment for the return of business because of, the, of, the, uh, of its replacement by online meeting technology. The other thing that Ben and I and the other guys that were in this in this group found was that there's also this issue of uh, concern for carbon and that there are many companies that are making pledges uh, to reduce their carbon footprint. And one of the things that is that a, that a management firm or a, 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 a service oriented firm can do is to cut back on business travel. And again, it's it's relying on online meeting technology. But I think it's going to have a real impact uh, going forward uh, as large corporations begin to make promises about reducing their carbon footprint. And one of the ways that this will happen will be through the stage three um, category, which includes uh, business travel. So, Jay, I've seen some surveys that suggest that when, you know, random people are asked how much of the emissions problem is caused by airlines, you get answers that are as high as 80%. And the average is like 30 to 40% of the world's emissions problems are airlines, which leads to this, well, we got to fly less. But in reality, airlines only provide 2% of the world's emissions. So is there a way that the industry can make that case without sounding like they're not responsible and don't care? You know, I I don't know. I think it's a very difficult message to say, well, we pollute, but we pollute less than everyone else. And I think that perhaps you can do that by pointing out, you know, not, not necessarily all the contributions of polluting and having some type of pie chart that has a narrow sliver be the airline industry, Perhaps another uh, way to do that is to show consumers all the areas that they can cut back on carbon emissions in, in their lives, and not to describe the airline industry as a as a category of of being overstated in terms of its overweight in terms of its its carbon uh, footprint. In fact, as as you just said, it's severely underweight. I think it's probably a smarter approach is to. Uh, show consumers all the areas that they can reduce their carbon footprint. And then obviously they will deduce that, oh, I guess airlines are not that big of a part of the picture or that there's much more to be done. It's a, you know, the whole issue, you know, even when you begin to talk about the issue of uh, sustainable aviation fuel, it's a very complicated thing to understand how that works in terms of uh, reducing carbon footprint, because it still is is it, it doesn't reduce the amount of pollution that comes out of a jet engine. So that, in addition to what you've described, Ben, is yet another uh, difficult thing to communicate. Jay, I wanted to ask you about a conversation I was watching last week. Uh, the Milken Institute had their annual conference in Los Angeles, and my boss, the president of Carnival Cruise Line, was sitting on a panel about the future of travel, joined by 
lodging executives from Marriott, Airbnb, and a hospitality REIT. And they were saying their data is showing very clearly business travel is coming back, but it's a very different kind of business travel in the context of the road warrior we think of is probably a good part of that is gone forever. But how people travel, whether it be conferences are coming back much more quickly than they anticipated. Uh, Longer stays are coming back. They're seeing a lot of, like you talked about, staff travel, off-sites, or a lot of people have moved away from their home office and might come back once a month for a week at a time or whatever else. So they're seeing different patterns of business travel, but a much more specific way business travel is coming back. Do you think the airline industry is getting good enough data or could they learn some things from hospitality they're not already doing in the context of how is business travel going to be different in the way it comes back? I think that it's it's premature to talk about any return of business travel with a degree of certainty. But I have heard, especially through the comments of the CEO of Accor, who said that, you know, he, he believes that there's a component of business travel that's forever gone. And I think he, I think he placed that number at 20%. But uh, there's, he also said that regionally, there seems to be a lot more activity with business travel that's not involving flights, where people are using tr- surface transportation like automobiles. And so it would not surprise me that's perhaps an outcome of this. But I think it's just premature to really guess with any certainty what is happening with business travel. There's also been this phrase that's been used of blended travel uh, in terms of, you know, people are uh, traveling for business, but including leisure elements in it. I still think that there's a lot of hopeful hype on behalf of the airline CEOs about business travel. Uh, and, And I think that the industry overall, the airline industry overall, is going to learn how to rely a lot more on leisure travel. Uh, and in this new category, or this this, I'll say it's new of premium leisure travel, than the traditional core of corporate travel. Well, Jay, you've done a lot of work on loyalty programs too. So, following this theme <clears throat> of uncertainty of the return of business travel or all business travel. Do you think loyalty programs need to change? And we've seen some recent changes by Delta and American, for example, that put more weight on credit card spend than actual flying. Yeah, I I think the the loyalty program uh, landscape is completely disrupted right now. I don't think that airlines have any idea what is happening, except that they certainly love and embrace the security blanket that is the co-brand credit card, especially in the U.S., the revenues produced by this. And so these programs have become effectively co-brand delivery card benefit de- delivery systems. And, you know, because the elite structure is in disarray because, you know, the, 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 the heavy flyers have disappeared. They're not back. I think that there's going to be a big chunk of them that will come back, by the way. But there's a, there's just disarray in this category. And, and unfortunately, it's pointing towards an area that has been a traditional area of weakness for frequent flyer programs. I can't tell you how many meetings I've been in with airlines talking about their frequent flyer programs. And I'll call it the problem of the blues. You know, if you look at tiers, the blue is the everyday member, and then you have silver, gold, and platinum. And all airlines lament, you know, they have this large tail of people who are members, the upper tier of them perhaps hold the credit card, but there's a big, vast tier that is not frequent flyers. And when they fly, they're not paying high fares. They are value oriented. And so what do you do with these travelers in terms of what do you do with these members? You don't have enough revenue from them to justify the expenditure of promotional or marketing or reward dollars. And there's so many of them. And so this is a ongoing challenge for the industry that has, I think, only been aggravated by the pandemic. How you traditionally would do work, work with that type of group is you try to create opportunities where everyday spend ends up on the, on the co-brand credit card. Well, the industry lost that opportunity probably 20 years ago uh, when they could have had the chance, had they been aggressive and gone in and nailed contracts with grocery store chains, nailed contracts with gasoline 
with petroleum companies, they especially messed up on the grocery store side. And that is, you know, they, they dithered and they tried to make too much money from these proposals. So these grocery store companies went out and started their own programs. That didn't need to happen. And so the way to engage those lower value members is through everyday spend. And that's a big challenge because so many programs exist by individual retailers for that. But I think the the opportunity exists for airlines to try to create some type of value out of the premium leisure travelers who are spending more money and perhaps are traveling more often. Jay, between some of your other research, the pandemic and just the changing nature of the industry, what other changes might airlines need to consider beyond loyalty to kind of adapt to the uh, ecosystem they're operating in? I think that I've, I've said this for quite a few years. Airlines need to become better retailers of travel, of the entirety of travel. And you have an example in Asia with AirAsia. AirAsia is doing, I'm fresh from this topic because I just spent a day trying to figure out what AirAsia's answer revenue profile is and or their footprint. And it is extremely difficult because AirAsia has effectively become a company that is attempting to become a, a general retailer of goods and services. And so to try to carve out what the airline is doing under that umbrella is practically impossible. As an aside, I think it's going to be very difficult for investment analysis to be performed in that company as an airline because of the way they are uh, disclosing information. So here's a company that is introduced what they call a super app. And this is an app that's supposed to meet a number of different uh, needs for consumers. And what they're trying to tap into is this everyday spend con- concept. And that is, you know, the app can be used as a, as a payment vehicle. It can be obviously used for the book travel. They have changed the travel into an OTA style where you not only see the availability of AirAsia flights, you see the availability of anyone who's operating in the market that you're selecting. So that's innovative. And, but there's going to be, and you obviously can book hotel and, and car rentals through this. You can buy food and have it delivered through some type of AirAsia group uh, subsidiary. In fact, they've even changed the name of the, the company. The holding company is called Capital A. And so that is an experiment in progress that I'm sure is going to have successes and it's going to have plenty of mistakes that are going to be made because they are on the cutting edge of trying to do this. And they may fail. I mean, I am somewhat reminded of the attempt, what, Ben, 30 years ago with Allegis? Maybe it's more than that. Richard Ferris, that's right. He attempted to put together this behemoth of an airline, a car rental company. It was uh, United, Hertz, and Hilton, correct? I think so, yep. And I think it existed. In, in, in fact, they named, they renamed the company Allegis uh, from United Airlines. I think it, it lasted for a couple of years and it just kind of fell apart because they could not create the synergies, the retail synergies, or probably even the management synergies. And so I look at the AirAsia example, and I'm, I am very cautious of success there. But regardless, I'm cautious of success there because they are so far out of the traditional role of an airline. What I'm calling for is for airlines just to become better retailers of travel. And, you know, if you look at, for example, here's a small thing. You have thousands of people every day waiting to get on planes at O'Hare Airport or any major hub in the country, a captive audience for an airline, and there is really no retail effort on those concourses to engage and capture future travel business on behalf of those travelers. And, and so you would have to remake that concourse experience to become something that is engaging from a travel perspective, not just a place to endlessly wait. Yeah. I mean, I, I wonder like, you know, why can't I use miles to pay for parking at the airports or, you know, I earn Hilton and Marriott points when I take Uber or Lyft. Why not on an airline? Maybe there are some part- partnerships out there I don't see, but there ought to be more ways just in the airline travel experience you could earn and spend your miles as well, I think. Well, I'm a bit of a purist here. I think that the focal point for redemption 
should be reward travel. That is what makes an airline program distinctive from any other program because it is the factory. It is making, it is manufacturing airline seats. And so therefore the marginal cost of providing that reward can be almost nothing. And so I think that is the source of power and strength for a frequent flyer program. Quite frankly, when I receive these catalogs from United Airlines, these merchandise catalogs, I just, I, I have never understood that concept apart from the fact that we want people to burn off miles so that we can post them as, as revenue. But in terms of creating something that furthers the brand, I just don't think a merchandise catalog does it. Well, and Jay, you, I'm sure you know that Allegiant has always referred to themselves as Allegiant Travel because they've wanted to sort of have people think of them as a travel company, not just an airline. Their, their slogan was, you know, we're a travel company that happens to own an airline. I always thought that was a, a cute thing. And, and that airline has enjoyed tremendous success. I mean, look at their route structure has been defined by vacation travel. In fact, even the itineraries of the flights in terms of the days of week where they con- have traditionally concentrated flying has been dictated by, you know, three, three night and four night stays. And so, you know, kudos to Allegiant. I mean, there's two airlines that really capture my attention in terms of being innovative in this area and being really hard charging on the topic of vacation travel. And they are one is Allegiant. The other one is a UK based airline called Jet2.com. And I think actually Jet2.com does a a more robust job. Uh, They have hundreds of staff that are located at destinations who are holiday assistants, who are on the ground at hotel locations that are charged with two initiatives. They are charged with helping travelers who they see as being their customers, even when they're on the ground, and also uh, encouraging them to buy more to generate more ancillary revenue for the the airline. And... Just to clarify, too, I'm not talking about using miles as currency, like you said, to buy Bose headsets and whatever else are in those catalogs, but just how do you better scoop up the travel experience and tap into those opportunities to gain loyalty? You know, double points at airport concessions or whatever it might be, but how do you make the travel experience a better way to earn loyalty from airline customers? So I think what what you're seeing the effect of is the effect of these programs being run as standalone companies that have their own uh, uh, income statement uh, responsibility. And I have never been a fan of the concept of hiving these companies off and having them be uh, separate subsidiaries creating some type of profit center for the airline, because I think it's, it is something that airlines do well. They have run loyalty programs, I think, better than any other industry. It is an area of strength. And so I don't think it's, it's helpful to separate that area of strength from the corporation. And so I think what needs to occur over the course of time, uh, what I hope occurs over the course of time, is that these, air, these loyalty programs begin to identify their airline routes again, uh, be return to the airline routes because uh, it is better off for the company to sell another airline seat than to sell more miles to a partner for the bottom line. That is where investors will truly be rewarded the most. And I think that they have been run as programs. And I understand why, because it's so inviting. It's so uh, compelling to generate billions in revenue from the sale of, 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 of miles to partners. Uh, but at their core, they're called frequent flyer programs, and they should be benefiting the airline for bringing more travelers, for generating more traffic, as opposed to selling more miles. Well, Jay, as we wrap up, what do you think are the biggest stories facing the airlines over the next year or two beyond sort of loyalty and ancillary revenue? Well, okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna violate the the the, the precept of, of your question, Ben, and one of the things I think is going to become a story uh, is merchant fees. And we have seen uh, a recent attempt by Visa and MasterCard to advance merchant fees. They also say they're cutting back merchant fees, but clearly your everyday merchants are feeling squeezed uh, by this because they lack the uh, negotiating power of the uh, nationwide retailers. So 
I think that merchant fees are going to be something that, you know, whenever this industry messes up, uh, it invites the uh, participation of the U.S. Congress. And that never has a good outcome for the airline industry. And so I've always been surprised how the airline industry fails to police itself and allows itself to get involved in that, boxed into that corner. But this is not totally the airline industry's fault, but it's going to affect the airline industry. If there are merchant fee caps that are implemented by Congress, it is going to have a hugely detrimental effect on frequent flyer programs because they have become so reliant on credit card revenue. And so that's a big story. Boy, if I were to if I were to bet, is it going in the direction of Congress becoming involved? I think it is. Uh, number two, alliances. You know, I think that we have passed the point where alliances. I think they have had their day in the sun, and I think that alliances will continue to provide. And these are alliances like Sky Team and One World and Star. I think they will continue to play a role in providing plumbing for the industry for it to connect with each other. But I think the brand aware, the brand forward positioning of these alliances, I think, is going to slowly recede. And I think that's because uh, airlines have found a new a new drug, and that is the joint venture. And I think these joint ventures are far more effective in generating uh, revenue uh, and profits for the airlines than the alliances have been. And I think it also comes back to Chris's point earlier about these global road warriors and these alliances were cr- formed mainly to support that type of traveler. If that tra- type of traveler is largely gone, one of the primary reasons for uh, the alliances to exist has been uh, has been reduced. Well, Jay, we could probably spend another hour talking. Maybe we'll have you back again. This has been a great conversation, uh, just the tip of the iceberg with regard to some of the loyalty and ancillary revenue and other kinds of um, marketing initiatives that uh, airlines are talking about and hopefully you'll come back again thank you guys i really enjoyed this well thank you jay and i think your tease on the merchant fee thing is going to be a discussion for a future show for sure especially if congress does act in that area and how that might affect the economics of these loyalty programs yeah i just reading the tea leaves i think it's going to be something that it's it certainly could be a bipartisan effort couldn't it a rare example of that. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Jay, and we'll be right back with more Airlines Confidential. This portion of Airlines Confidential is sponsored in part by AeroData, the leading edge in flight performance data. Visit aerodata.co. AeroData is a Garmin company. Welcome back to Airlines Confidential. Great interview with uh, Jay Sorensen, and hope you enjoyed that. Now it's time for our listener questions. Please email your questions at questions at airlinesconfidential.com or visit our website at airlinesconfidential.com and follow the prompts. We're available on all the major podcast platforms and you can ask Amazon Alexa or Google Assist to turn us on. Just say, play the Airlines Confidential podcast. Ben, we've continued to get comments and questions spurred on by our conversation with Catherine Creedy last month. And earlier in the show, we talked a bit about the pilot shortage. I want to address some of the questions our listeners have raised, and my apologies if we can't get to them all. There have been a lot of very thoughtful emails, and even if they didn't like what Catherine said, it certainly has generated a lot of constructive dialogue. Peter from Connecticut wrote this, Ben. Hey, Ben and Chris, love the show. I wanted to get your analysis on pilot scope clauses versus the pilot shortage. With the pilot shortage, does it really make sense to be outsourcing regional flying and not bring it in-house? At my airline, we have to take seats out of aircraft to make them scope compliant. If these planes were put into mainline service, an airline could outfit them with as many seats as they want. It also allows for newer, more efficient aircraft. The 175E2 was delayed due to not meeting scope weight restrictions. There are markets now that have LCCs or ULCC players on narrow bodies while the big three fly an old regional jet. Of course, management might be hesitant to pay pilots at a higher wage to fly this in-house, but do you think it's time for the C-suite to start costing out the absorption of their regional counterparts? Will there be enough efficiencies gained to justify this? Thanks so much. 
I think this is a great question, Peter, and it's a complicated one, as you allude to in your question. You know, the scope clauses that pilots have negotiated with major airlines do define, you know, the size and weight of airplanes that are covered by the contract. And that has allowed the bigger airlines to outsource essentially flying to regional carriers who do hire pilots at lower average rates but they fly smaller average planes. Now, you've seen United already do a bit of what you're saying, or at least set themselves up to do what you're saying. They placed an order for 270 airplanes a few months back and stated one of the major reasons for those planes was to replace 70 and 90 seat jets flying with regionals to fly for the main airline. So they're saying they're going to rely at least less, if not completely, bring in-house all those pilots. They're going to, they said, we want more people on these flights. We believe we can fill these planes. So we're going to upgauge a number of these. So I think it's really interesting. Um, the scope causes, in some sense, created the ability for regional jets to work or at least the ability to pay pilots a little bit less to fly those planes. I guess it's not the scope cause itself. It's the fact they were there. So for the airline you work for, if your airline were to insource that work, do you think your pilot group would accept maybe a little lower rate of pay for that plane, but you would flow from that plane into the bigger narrow body and eventually into the wide body? Or would you say, no, if they're flying the 90 seat plane, we'll put all 90 seats on it or we'll put all 100 seats on it, but they need to be paid like they're flying a 320. I think those would be the issues the union and management would have to discuss and whether or not that makes sense. I think there is a way to make it efficient and make it possible to do it that way. I'm not completely sure it solves the pilot problem, though, because you still need the pilots and they still have to come from somewhere. So if you shrink the regional business, now you're going to have to find other pools of where you find pilots to work for the big airlines, too. So I like your idea as an efficiency play overall, but I'm not sure how it really helps fix the pilot problem. I'm just going to add, and I don't say this to be critical of anybody or anything or anyone, scope is almost like the Roe v. Wade of the airline industry. There's so much emotion around it. One thing I think the industry and labor needs to do is find a way to have these conversations that don't invoke the word scope, but really kind of just like take that word out of the conversation and look at solutions because it just generates so much heat. But like you said, United's kind of identified a path for this. And the, one of the paths is you know, kind of like maybe less frequency and more larger aircraft on certain routes. And that's going to play into other kinds of things with regard to carbon reduction and other kinds of things. Do airlines need to swamp a market and try to be as competitive with frequency on certain routes with all their competitors versus offering a better product? larger plane, time of day, whatever else. I think a lot of things are going into some of the changes you're seeing in the business. That makes a lot of sense, Chris. I, I agree. And you're right. Scope clauses are very emotional things. When I teach my class, I usually give them a copy of one of the big airline scope clauses, not because I want them to read it, but just to see how big they can be. Like some of them are 30, 40 pages long, right? And so a lot goes into those things. And just the, you know, I can imagine just sitting down with a pilot's group and saying, we want to talk changes to the scope clause. You Im immediately put people on the defensive, right? Yep, exactly. And then Scotty from Raleigh-Durham wrote in with a different question related to the same broad topic of the pilot shortage. Ben and Chris, I've been listening to the podcast for about a year and a half and really love it. After listening to Catherine Creedy's comments, I found myself agreeing to some of her points of view. From the emails you read in the following show, that was clearly not the norm. I was in training in standards as a Czech airman 
and other roles at a regional carrier from 2004 to 2014. This time covered a couple of cycles, with the most significant being the implementation of the 1,500-hour rule after the Colgan accident. When we were mandated to switch to 1,500 hours, the amount of training went up. That was mostly due to the need to change bad habits the pilots learned and trying to instill, quote, the airline way, as we regularly received, but I have done it this way before and it worked. There are surely things that we can and should do to make aviation pilot jobs more attainable. Cost and time is significant. A reduction of hours required to be hired would reduce both. Maybe a good follow-on interview would be one of the AB Initio programs like Lufthansa has. We in the U.S. need to understand what other areas are doing, not to copy them, but to see if there's a better way. I'm sure Catherine is polarizing with specific groups, but we can all learn if we truly listen to people and each other. Thank you for the show. I enjoy it, and I look forward to it each week. That's a great comment, Scotty. And the 1,500-hour rule is what I was referring to earlier in this show when I said that's something the FAA could do to help the pilot problem. So I think you're exactly right. And it's interesting that you say that you've seen the effects of that in your training. I've heard that, and to hear it directly from you, who was a trainer, you know, makes that even more real. I agree that Catherine was... was um, a lightning rod for a number of issues. But like you, I felt that some of her ideas were good. And, and by talking to people and having people be passionate and interested, we can come up with better answers overall. But I really like your idea about how to sort of use other models around the world and think about what we require of the training up front. Those are both really good ways to address this issue. Well, with that, we're ready to wrap up this week's show, and I'm going to give my shout-out to Provo, Utah. Not only is it a beautiful city and an interesting place, but now they have two airlines. That airport was only served by Allegiant going to a number of places, but now Breeze is starting three nonstop flights from Provo to San Francisco, Las Vegas, and Los Angeles. Two of those, they'll compete directly with Allegiant, which I think is kind of interesting. San Francisco is a new route for Provo, but is the home of BYU and just a real uh, enjoyable part of the state of Utah. I think it's great that more airlines are serving Provo and see it as a place that people want to go for both work and pleasure. So congratulations to Provo. I hope you can get even a third airline soon. That's a good one. And I'm going to give my shout out to the poor folks who work at the Delta Sky Clubs who, effective June 1st, are going to have to enforce some very unpopular rules just announced last week, like you can't enter the club more than three hours before your flight and arriving passengers without a connecting flight can't access the club. All to reduce overcrowding. I hope the unruly passenger syndrome doesn't migrate to the Sky Clubs on June 1st and beyond. Well, that's a real interesting one, Chris. So the days of flying in where you're home, but saying, but I'll have a meeting in the club before I go home. Those days are gone. Huh? Uh, well, they might be for June 1st and 2nd. Let's see how long that sticks. <laughs> well, thanks, everyone. Thanks again to Jay Sorensen, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. Have a good week. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.